because you're jumping back into the gut. All right, let's hey, go. coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media on Twitter at Bball Immersion or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Awesome to welcome Ohio University head coach Jeff Bowles to the podcast. Coach Bowles is coming off a successful season in which Ohio won the MAC conference, beat Virginia in the NCAA tournament before losing to Creighton in the round of 32. Prior to Ohio, Bowles spent three seasons as head coach at Stony Brook University and seven years as an assistant coach for the Ohio State Buckeyes under Thad Mata. Coach Bowles, welcome to the podcast. Chris, thanks for having me. Long-time listener, first time on here, and very, very appreciative of you inviting me. Absolutely, Coach. Long overdue, and many people wouldn't know, but our connection goes back to when you're an assistant at Ohio State, and you guys brought your team to play at Windsor. And the part that I remember most, and we'll talk about how good you guys were, but that you guys stayed in cabins, and that was the only team that did that, and it was a really cool concept. Crazy story. So we ended up staying up in the, uh, the tomato capital of the world, right? Leamington. Yeah. And we bust up there and we had three cabins and it was right on the water, right on Lake Erie. And it was like midnight when we got there and coach Mata gave a flashlight to the seniors and said, Hey, go find your room. Five minutes later, gave a flashlight to the juniors said, go find your room. Underclassmen, go find your room. So the coaches had one cabin and the players had two cabins and you know, the cell phone service was not very good and expensive. And our, I think our guys went back to their childhood. They were playing like capture the flag and playing the piano, doing their own karaoke. And it was, it was just an awesome trip. And how good you guys were. We were fortunate. We got to host a lot of teams on their foreign tours. And you know, we played Kentucky, Virginia Tech, a lot of mid to low majors as well. But yours was by far the best team we ever played. And as I say to coaches, I explain it to say that your players had counters to the counters. And it was just incredible to be able to watch. And, of course, you tell a story about Evan Turner in that trip as well. Yeah, so going, going into that trip, you know, Evan Turner had never played the point guard. And, you know, we didn't really have a point guard coming back. So Thad basically said, put the ball in his hands and said, hey, look, you're our point guard. And, you know, it was different because we used the 24-second shot clock. So when teams don't prepare for that, it's a completely different game than a 35-second shot clock, 30-second shot clock. It ends up being transition, pick and roll, and and his vision was really, really good. And and Thad just was really, really good at giving confidence and belief. And that's one thing I really got from him. And, you know, he instilled that in Evan, and he had a phenomenal year that year. Tremendous year and tremendous team. And we're going to talk about some of the things that you do to instill confidence and get into a whole bunch of things. Obviously, tremendous season. But one of the cool articles that I read was about your group chat with your 1993-94 uh, team and that you get involved with uh, throughout the season. I thought that was a real cool concept that coaches can kind of steal that idea as well. Yeah, I think play college basketball or any college sport, really, you have a bond and an immediate fraternity per se. And when you win a championship, you know, you're bonded for life. That's something that can never be taken away from you. And, you know, normally you have your reunions, but, you know, it's a special moment that you shared with a group of guys that you blood, sweat, tears, everything with. And, you know, have our, our group chat going. And I mean, every single day, it's all day long. And you would think some guys didn't work, you know, by the way, and, and the amount of uh, responses, but nobody's safe in that group chat. And it's just like yesterday, we're on a bus trip to Eastern Michigan or, you know, in the locker room, you know, everyone gets cracked on and no one's safe. And, you know, me included, like, we, we're going through the MAC tournament. And, you know, my guys are questioning why I did this, why I didn't do this. and it's a good way to keep you humble. I definitely keep you humble. Now, this has come up in the kind of the past few podcasts as well. And I'm curious, do you have a group of mentors or coaches that you keep in touch with in a similar way to that as well? Yeah, not near to that extent. But I think, you know, anybody who coaches, you want to have, you know, a mentor or, or multiple mentors. And you know, a lot of times it could be an assistant coach you, you uh, play for. It could be an administrator, you know, the head coaches. And I've been very, very fortunate. Uh, Chris to have worked with and for a lot of great head coaches. Mark Schmidt at St. Bonaventure, 
um, you know, Thad Mata, Keith Dambrot, uh, Jason G, Greg White, uh, and then my head coach, Larry Hunter, who got me into the profession. And I've been very fortunate that way. And, you know, Larry, Larry Hunter was that for me, kind of going through the early phases. And, you know, now, you know, working for Thad for seven years, you know, I talk to him every single week. And he's been a great mentor, consultant for me, um, you know, bouncing ideas off of him and, and just, uh, you know, great mentorship. Uh, an assistant coach, Matt Klein, who is a, a former assistant coach at, um, at uh, Eastern Michigan, mentioned to me in preparing to the podcast, that he just thought that you guys were such an excellent passing team. And I guess the curious question comes up about how you work on that and how you develop that. And uh, certainly having watched your team play a number of times this year, I really enjoyed the ball movement. Yeah, I think obviously it helps when you have really good point guards, you know, to kind of set the tone uh, to facilitate. But it's funny you say that because I was at Peach Jam with Thad one time and Doc Rivers was there. And, you know, Thad asked Doc, he said, hey, like, what do you guys do? You know, what passing drills do you do? Because, you know, you guys pass the ball so well. And this is when he was at the Celtics. And he said, we don't do any passing drills. He's like, but we, what we do do is we just accentuate every assistant coach, perfect pass, perfect pass. He's like, you know, we're paying Ray Allen $14 million to catch and shoot. You know, he's got to have a perfect pass. He's like, now some guys you don't want to shoot. You know, you don't mind if it's a bad pass where they got to catch it and, you know, bring it down. But, you know, it's one thing we, we do passing drills, but we really, really accentuate and, and, you know, talk about perfect pass every single time. And, you know, if, it, if it's not perfect, you know, we'll kind of start to drill over and, until they do just to get their minds thinking. So it's really an emphasis more than anything in terms of that. And I'm wondering, do you connect any of that to analytics or anything for your players to be able to understand the importance? Yeah, I, I like analytics. I'm not the end-all, be-all in analytics. But I think, you know, when you show them film, right, where, you know, hey, if this pass wasn't here but it was here, you know, he could have got that shot off, and that would have been the best shot we got in that possession. So I think just really showing the guys, you know, the importance of it and, and drilling it, you know, where, hey, look, you know, sometimes we do throw bad passes, you know, to, to catch and shoot in our shooting drills uh, just so, you know, they're, they're used to it. But, you know, we really more emphasize it and, and show film to kind of, you know, back our, our thought process up. So, so by saying that, you're saying you, that some of the drills that you go into, the constraint is that you have to throw a bad pass so they get used to catching a bad pass? Yeah, sometimes in our shooting drills, you know, we'll tell our coaches to throw it high, throw it low, you know, because it's not going to be perfect every single time. And it's more, you know, getting your, your feet right, trying to get your balance back, getting your momentum going forward. Uh, so we do practice that as well. Yeah, that's great. That's such a great point and great concept to be able to emphasize. And I know some coaches sometimes shy away from doing things like that because they think now you're saying it's okay to throw a bad pass, but players are smart enough to know the difference, right? Yeah, you know, especially when we do our, our you know, passing drills is where we really, you know, talk about it. And I think, you know, the, the way the game's played, and I'm a big believer in next play mentality. And you know, the game of basketball, let's say 70 possessions in a game. There's so many possessions going on, so many things happening where you can't slow down. And I, I played for coaches before where they stop you every single time you make a mistake to correct it and, and do it again. And I just don't think my personal belief is you know, that's not the game of basketball. You got to learn to play through your mistakes. Uh, so it's going to happen. And, you know, when it does happen, you have to make the best of it and, and try to correct it. Well, and that's something that we're going to dive into here is the next play mentality and the growth mindset. So let's start with next play mentality. What are some things that you do to build that uh, for your players? I think, you know, a lot of, I, I think it's a skill, you know, to be honest with you. I think, you know, certain guys have it, certain guys don't. And, and you know, when you come into a situation where guys make mistakes and they get pulled out of the game, right? So the first thing they do is, you know, they roll their head, they throw their palms up. And you know, I remember my first, uh, one of my first practices when I was at Stony Brook, uh, when I got the job, you know, we were, we were working out and, you know, my point guard goes in there and gets fouled. There's a no call. He misses the layup. So he puts his head down, runs back down the court, you know, doesn't say a word. And then we come back down, the other team scores. And then my point guard's still mad about not getting the call. So he goes down to the corner. So now my wing has to bring the ball up, throws the ball to my center who travels. And he loses his mind, goes absolutely nuts. 
And I'm just like looking at this, like, what are we doing? So I blow the whistle and, you know, a teachable moment, right? So I kind of go back through the whole play. Like, let's go back to the layup. You got fouled. Like, you know, I saw it. You, it was a no call. But you have to play through that. You know, now since you pouted and, you know, didn't get the basketball, you know, our center travels and he loses his mind. And we, you know, our first game was against Maryland, I believe, that year. And I'm like, what are we going to do when we play Maryland? You know, 16,000 people, Big Ten refs. So really just talking about it, you know, when, when scenarios happen, teachable moments, I call them. Um, but, but really getting to understand, like, I don't care if you miss a shot. I, I care if you're ready to shoot the second shot. You know, I don't care if you turn the ball over. I care if you sprint back on defense to try to get the ball back. So really just, you know, emphasizing like, hey, look, as the head coach, you know, I'm okay if this happens. It's, it's done. It's passed. It's over. We got to worry about the next thing. And I really believe it's a skill. So we really try to work on that. Sometimes I'll do drills and I'll tell our assistant coaches to, you know, not call fouls or, you know, put, put the team in a situation where there's an adverse, you know, situation uh, that they have to play through. So this is, this is awesome. And I totally agree. It's a skill you can build. And, uh, you know, part of it is obviously creating the environment for it to happen. And mis- we know mistakes are part of the game. So normalizing that, which you've talked about as well. So then I'm wondering the next step, what are some coping strategies that you give to the players or that you emphasize to the players to be able to actually handle it? And as in that example, uh, one, it might be just awareness to start, but what else do you do to be- give them coping strategies? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's almost a learned behavior, right? You, 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 you grow up, like I said, certain coaches might pull you out of the game if you make mistakes. So that's constantly in your mind. You're, you're looking over your shoulder. Um, you know, sometimes it's a defense mechanism, right, where you might miss a layup and claim there's a foul, but there's not a foul. So I think really just emphasizing it, drilling it. Um, and it's, a, it's an everyday deal with us of really just preaching, hey, next play, next play. And even when, you know, like when Evan Turner played, he was such a perfectionist and he was so much better than everybody else. Like he'd make a play and throw a pass where the guy should have been, you know, but, but the guy wasn't there because Evan saw something that he didn't see and he would sometimes lose his mind. And Thad just had a great way of connecting with him. Like, Hey, look, it's okay. It's okay. But that was kind of his personality and who he was. And, um, you know, so really just, you know, talking about it, emphasizing it and preaching it and, you know, when, when scenarios rise up, we call them teachable moments and really giving them the confidence and belief like, hey, you know, as a head coach, it's OK if you do this, but it's not OK if you, you know, follow it up with another mistake. Do you actually use the phrase in teachable moments with your players so that they understand? Yeah, we do. I, I think, you know, you want to, you know, it's, it's a reaction game, right? There's so many different things that happen. And. You know, I'm at fault. I think a lot of head coaches are at fault. They want to control everything. And, you know, we run a lot of set plays, a lot of horns actions. It's, you know, European NBA stuff. Um, this year, I want to try to focus on more playing basketball and giving them concepts. But uh, I think for us, it's, you know, giving them the confidence and belief to be able to make a play and, and not be afraid to make a play. And if you do make a mistake, don't worry about it. You know, keep playing and play through it. Well, I love that. And I love connecting learning language for players. When we use intentional learning language like that, teachable moments, it's great. I'm curious then, what what changes do you see in a player as they build this ability to be able to move on to the next play? Do you ever talk to them about some of the differences from the beginning of the year, say, to the end of the year in terms of this? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, when it does happen, you know, and, and as a coach, you know, sit there, educate and you teach and you preach and you show film. And then when it does happen the right way, you know, it kind of validates everything you've, you've worked on. And, you know, like anything, you want to get positive feedback. So you might pull a player over. You might show them the clip on film. You might do it in front of everybody to reinforce, like, hey, look, you know, two weeks ago, Billy would, would have stopped playing. You know, look here, boom, perfect. Turns the ball over, you know, doesn't put his palms up, doesn't, you know, look at his teammate and gesture. He just turns, runs back, takes a charge or, you know, gets a block shot. So I think really, um, you know, I guess putting them in a situation where they feel good about it and, and you know, that the good things have happened. Hey, coach, I really appreciate you listening to the basketball podcast, and I hope you will consider supporting it and your coaching even more as the countdown is over. It's here. It's live. It's been years in the making. 
we have launched our newly redesigned website at basketballimmersion.com. Basketball Immersion is an effective player development tool because we focus on coach development. Since we know the greatest player development is coach development, we support and stimulate change in you as a coach. Now is the time to immerse yourself in learning. In our community, we'll show you how to get specific outcomes using comprehensive video and course-based learning, as well as community interaction and expert sharing in our master classes. You will get specific outcomes to stimulate, add to, make over, or improve your coaching. Join our community today at basketballimmersion.com and learn what is possible. Hey coach, have you gotten on Locker Room app yet? Live audio only sports talk platform, free to download and to use. Talk to me, other fans, athletes, and insiders in real time. Perfect for watch parties, debates, post-game breakdowns, and reacting to breaking news. Share your own experiences on the app. All you need to do is download the Locker Room app free in the iOS app store. Create a profile link your Twitter, and join me at 9 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday nights to ask questions, share ideas, and to have basketball coaching conversations on Locker Room app. Follow me at B-Ball Immersion, live on Locker Room, on Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. Well, you can see that certainly in terms of how your team played down the stretch, that they played this way. They played with that next play mentality. And uh, you mentioned the NBA, and you mentioned uh, spacing the European concepts a little bit. Just curious, maybe from the NBA perspective, what are some things that you've taken from the NBA that uh, fit into what you do? Yeah, you know, they're, they're college and NBA are two completely different games. But I think from a standpoint of the spacing and, and really just playing basketball, I think you look at the five men, right? We You call it the throw and go or the get action, you know, where I think Steph Curry or Brad Beal or somebody started it, where, you know, you're hitting the five man and you're playing off each other and, and you're setting screens and, you know, we've had some five men this year. We had a kid uh, who, you know, was I think top five in the country in field goal percentage. You know, he was more of a block player, but he's really worked on expanding his game, shooting threes, being more comfortable in the perimeter. And, you know, I think next year we'll be able to do some things where he pops up, we hit him. You know, we got guard cutting movement off the, off the ball and screening actions, um, you know, where, where it's more, you know, habit or, you know, just, you know, uh, uh, kind of happens organically where, you know, guys make certain reads. And like I told you before, I'm almost to a fault. You know, sometimes you want to control everything. You want to control shots. And, you know, there were there were times this year, my point guard, my foreman, uh, Jason Preston, Ben Vanderplas, especially when we played Illinois, you know, I wouldn't call a set. My assistant would be like, hey, let, let those two figure it out. You know, they'll, <laughs> they'll play a two-man game and, and they'll figure it out. So I think, you know, the older team you have and the um, more you coach them, you know, you're going to trust them more, but you still got to teach those concepts and, and let them play. No, no mistakes are going to happen. Even with such a tremendous season, you're still looking for a better way. And I'm curious if that's dictated a little bit by you now having more time in the program with certain players, or is that just philosophically that you see this opportunity to be able to go to more conceptual type offense? I think a little bit of both, you know, when you, when you run a lot of sets and, you know, Teams are starting to switch everything more, right, and, and make you play basketball. Um, you know, they'll, they'll guard, you know, ball screens a certain way, not, not let you come off and keep you on one side of the floor, icing them. So I think, you know, when you run set, 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 and, you know, we run our four-out, one-in flow offense, you know, for our, our secondary flow. But I think if you, if you really just teach some concepts of, of playing basketball, you know, it's going to take away all the switching. You know, you can you know, work against it in practice. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, going into year three, we have some veteran guys uh, who, who are, you, you trust. So I think it's a little bit of both. Well, I love this. And I didn't expect to go here, but it, it so makes sense in a, in a way, the way that you're phrasing it. And I've said this before on the podcast is going from this structure to unstructure, that it's okay. It doesn't have to be all of one or all of the other. It's a blend, basically, as you progress this. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you do something like that, you know, sometimes it allows you to play your five best players, you know, and, you know, Thad was always big on that. Like, hey, find a way to get your best five guys on the floor. And part of that was us moving Evan to the point guard, um, you know, just letting him figure it out and our guys figure it out. But, you know, there's got to be a trust involved and, you know, there's got to be some teaching concepts involved and, you know, that, that'll happen through reps. That'll happen through film, you know, showing what we did right, what we did wrong. You know, we'll clip up NBA games. I'll clip up European tape of, 
you know, kind of showing them, you know, what we want to do, how we want to do it, just so they get an idea and a sense, you know, knowing it's not going to be perfect, but it'll give them a, a you know, visual to, you know, kind of hang on to and, and see what we want to do. Well, that's great stuff. And they must enjoy connecting it to the NBA, especially in terms of seeing opportunities for them to do similar things. Yeah, it's always easier, you know, when you, you pull up a clip of, you know, Jason Tatum doing it, you know, they, they kind of focus in a little bit more. And, you know, there, there's, you know, I'll call some of my side out of bounds and underneath or, you know, set plays after the NBA teams that run them, you know, just so our guys understand like, hey, I got this from the Clippers. And, you know, we we ran, uh, you know, against Virginia after, you know, late game, you know, we ran Clippers and and it worked to a T and, you know, my guys are over pointing to the bench like, yeah, you know, I remember that play. And so it's good to, you know, because they focus a little bit more when it's NBA driven. So you mentioned the Virginia game, and that leads into another topic that I know is near and dear to you, and that's its growth mindset and this this mentality that comes with it. So maybe first, just let's focus on the Virginia game. Going into that type of game, your players had no doubt they could win, I imagine, going into that game. Yeah, we, we had a lot of confidence, you know, especially with the way we played the MAC tournament. I think um, you know, out of 120 minutes, we led for 117 in three games. And, you know, the whole week it was kind of like everyone was talking about Virginia being on a pause and and they, they were talking to the wrong coach in the wrong program because we had played three games in I think 38 days, went through a 21-day pause, got our last two regular season games canceled. And my starting two guard was 10-day contact trace quarantine heading into the MAC tournament, literally comes over and shoots for about 30 minutes on Wednesday, gets on the bus goes to Cleveland, has 18 points the next day. So, you know, we, we were on high alert. You know, they, they had been working out individually, not as a team. Uh, it's not like they were locked up in the dorms or apartments. But our guys had a ton of confidence going in that game. And I think it started with the Illinois game you know, at the start of the year. Uh, that was our third game in three days. You know, I think they were ranked top five at the time. Um, you know, had some great players. And, and you know, we feel like we should have won that game. But we were right there at the end. And, I think that game really catapulted us and, and gave us the confidence to know we can compete with them. And, uh, you know, now we had to execute, you know, because obviously Virginia is Virginia and uh, they're phenomenal defensively or they're more efficient offensively this year than they've ever been. And uh, our guys made plays down the stretch when they needed to. I imagine there'll be some really unique stories continuing to come out from this season from coaches and players and everything that, I know you guys experienced, including the Cleveland State game, which, again, you have all these outlier, really weird situations that happened all year. And the resiliency that your team showed this year, obviously, down the stretch and to get it right at the right time is part of the process that I know you emphasize, isn't it? Yeah, it's, you know, our our goal, we have a simple goal, be closer as a team, be better as a, a team every single day. And, you know, it sounds very, you know, bland, but, you know, we really try to do that. And, if you if you go back to starting, you know, like we talked about before, you know, we used the equation E plus R equals O. And we, we kept on talking like, hey, at some point we're going to get hit by this COVID, whether it's our team or, or whoever. And we went seven months without anything like we were we were our guys were here in July last summer doing workouts. And, you know, it was different for everybody. But we went seven months and then, you know, we ended up taking um, someone who had been hurt on a road trip to central Michigan. He ended up talking to a high school buddy of his that he grew up with. And, you know, the next thing you know, their kid tests positive, our kid tests positive. And then it was like, boom, boom, boom. It was a wave. And, you know, we, but we kept on talking like, Hey, at some point it's going to happen. How are we going to respond? Right. We got to be positive. We got to control. What we can control. We got to do what we can. And we're going to come out of this, you know, better on the other side. So I think it was a matter of belief and confidence and making sure everyone was healthy obviously, because we had multiple guys doing it. But when we came back, you know, we didn't have 10 guys back at the same time to be able to practice. You know, so we, we came back, and I, I called Michigan because they went through a 14-day break. You know, theirs was different because they, they didn't have anybody test positive or contact traced, but they didn't do anything. So we tried to structure it to build our guys back up conditioning-wise, you know, practice-wise, timing-wise. But we didn't practice 5v5 heading into our first game against uh, – Akron and with and in that game we didn't have Jason Preston we didn't have Dwight Wilson and I remember talking to coach Mata and he's like hey whatever you do give your team as much confidence as they can 
And that's kind of where I, the last probably three weeks of the season, I said, hey, go play with uber superior ultra confidence. You know, if you're open, shoot the ball. You know, don't think twice about it. And we ended up winning that game by double figures. And uh, so I think really this, the way we preach and talk and, you know, it's an overused word, but the culture, right? The positivity, control what you can, how are you going to respond to being on, on a long layoff? Uh, I think really, you know, got us through, you know, the, the pause that we had. That's uh, great stuff. And going back to that equation, I want you to build on that a little bit. I know we talked about it a little bit with Corey Close from UCLA Women's Basketball on that podcast, but can you go through that equation a little bit? Because I think it's such a cool thing and uh, an easy way to connect the dots for people. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm sure people have done it, but, you know, Tim and Brian Kite, Focus 3, um, they do a phenomenal job. And they started working with Urban Meyer, I think, back in 2014. And, you know, going through and, and seeing Ohio State football and the way they did things and, you know, listening to it for years, you know, I've always been intrigued by it. And, you know, from day one, when I got my head coaching job, I, I used that equation, put it on shirts, put it on, you know, in our locker room. And, you know, ease the event, which they say 95% of the time, you don't control the event that happens to you. And, you know, I use this a lot with recruits. We'll talk about, hey, if you go one for 12 shooting in a game, that's the event. What's your R, your response going to be? You know, you're going to shoot more. You're going to get extra reps up. You're going to watch tape. You know, are you shooting bad shots, contested shots? Is your footwork bad? You know, and then, oh, the outcome's going to be different next time. And I'll say, hey, you get a 68 on a math test, right? That's the event. What's your response going to be? You know, are you going to go see the teacher, professor? You're going to get a tutor. You're going to study harder next time. You know, oh, the outcome is going to be different next time. So we really talk about, you know, re response, response, response. You know, you know there, was, there was a game this year we lost to Kent State. And we got hammered on the boards and we had a quick turnaround. And, you know, like the NBA, we did our, we did our practice through film and we really had a, a heart to heart. And it was like, Hey, look, we gave up 18 offensive rebounds. That's the event. What's our response going to be. Okay. We went through and we charted every attempt to block out, every missed block out, every opportunity to block out. Here's your percentage. You didn't block out 67% of the time, 63%, 58. And, and you know, we lost the game. By, by doing that so our response has to be you know different and from that game on you know we started charting everything practicing games those rebounding opportunities uh the attempts to block out the missed blockouts and our rebounding was way better you know throughout the last three weeks of the year well it's great connecting the dots for players as well with these uh you know a little bit of analytics or a little bit of uh quantifying it to be able to go with this equation E plus R equals O, and just such a such a simple way to be able to phrase it. I imagine your players enjoyed that. Yeah, and I think, like you said, like once they can see right that they're not doing it or they are doing it, you know, it, it's you know easier for them to comprehend. And when you sit there and say, okay, if you give up eighteen offensive rebounds, and statistically, whatever you get out rebounded by, it's one point per you know rebound. We lost by ten points. You know, so if we cut this down. You know, we cut our turnovers down where we make 48% of our shots. You know, you win this game by, you know, six points or whatever it may be. So you, you want to kind of have them, you know, be able to relate to it and understand why, you know, we're doing what we're doing. And, uh, you know, the carryover was there, which is good. Well, it gives life to really an abstract con concept, which is what you originally started this whole thing with, which is the next play mentality, right? Yeah, and I think it, it all ties in because – you know, everyone's got egos, everyone's got their defense mechanisms. And, you know, it, it, it's like you have to figure out each individual, right? Everyone's different. And, and I think you know, everyone learns differently. So you have to, you know, some guys, we have to put them through and walk them through, you know, something somebody can show on a tape and they can visually see it. Somebody you have to just tell them what, what to do and they'll do it. So you got to figure out how to do it, you know, the, the right way. So everybody is on the same page. What are some other things, Coach, that you do to build this growth mindset within your program? Uh, I mean, the simple thing from obviously the takeaway for many of us from the Carol Dweck work is obviously praising effort over outcome. Is that part of it for you? Yeah, it, it's, you know, when I, when I got the Stony Brook job, you know, it was the first time they'd ever been the NCAA tournament. And the starting, you know, unit was gone. And I, there were role players that were coming back. So going in, you know, my mentality was going to be like, look, I'm going to have a growth mindset. I'm not going to be worried about results. You know, it's going to be a process every day, you know, control what we can, 
know, if we lose, let's figure out why we lose and continue to work on it. And if you go back, you know, I mean, every coach is different, right? 10 years ago, you might take losses completely different, right? You hang on to it. And, you know, that year, I, I, didn't, I didn't let the losses affect me in, in a way. Like, I might look at some things I would have done differently, which, you know, what we can talk about. But I think I was worried about, okay, we didn't do this. We need to get better at that, even if we won, right? It's better to learn from winning than it is to learn from losing because you can learn the same things. But, you know, just what do we need to keep working on to get better? And really having that bigger picture mentality of, hey, our league's going to come down to three three games in March anyway. So let's just continue to get better every single day, continue to work on the things we can, control what we can, and not worry about it. So, you know, when I got the job at Stony Brook, two kids got arrested the night of my interview. And they didn't tell me until after my press conference. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, welcome to Division One head coaching. Here we go. And it was uh, one kid was graduating. One was the uh, toughest returning player. Three three weeks later, my best returning player got arrested. You know, twice in three weeks, and you know, obviously those guys were gone. So we were picked seventh out of nine in the league that year, and we finished second. And I really believe it was just the the process, the mentality of you know wanting to get better and you know not taking the losses and and going crazy. It was more just, hey, look, here's what we did wrong. Let's continue to work on it and get better and. And uh, so I think that's kind of where it came from and it's carried through everywhere, Ben. Well, you know, this matter of fact positivity that that you have and you're talking about is so effective. And yet it's it's just not cool to talk about it, is it? <laughs> like coaches want all the buzzwords and all the phrases and stuff. But really, it's the simple things like you're talking about that make the difference, isn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, as a coach, you're judged and based on wins and losses and championships. Right. But I, I think, you know. You know, everyone's like, hey, look, be you when you get your first head coaching job. You know, don't be Thad Mata, Don't be Keith Ambrot. You're going to take bits and pieces of what you liked and didn't like. But you have to be yourself. And, you know, when you're making every decision, it, it impacts, affects winning and losing. Right. You'll take it a little bit harder. But I think that's one of the cool things about it. Like it, it's on you. So, you know, there's nobody that, you know, wants your son to play better than the head coach because my livelihood depends on it. And, and just really trying to figure it out on an individual basis, on a team basis, you know, what to do, how to do it, when to do it, and, and you know, ha have that duration because it's a long year. I mean, you look at, you know, when I played, you didn't have summer school. You didn't have individual workouts in the summer. You had, to, you had to get better on your own, right? You had to find a place to go lift, and, and it was almost like that in the pandemic last, you know, spring and summer. Guys had to find their own way. And I think now it's such a long year, you know, it's year round, you know, you got to have fun doing it. You know, Thad was always big on fresh minds and fresh legs and not overdoing things. And, you know, you look at the Ivy League, Ivy League doesn't have summer basketball. You know, they don't see their kids until, you know, start of school and, you know, it works out pretty good for them. So I think the pandemic has, has taught us a lot about coaching and kind of going back to some things maybe that you, you, you know, thought were a negative, but could be a positive. Yeah, it's such a great point. I, I'm so curious to see how, when it does get back to normal, how some coaches have changed based on what they went through in terms of some of those things. And one of those things being, we don't need the volume that we think we need for players, do we? No, I mean, you go back to, we had a 21-day layoff, like, you know, pretty much 14 where we didn't do anything, right? And then certain guys came back and we had six guys on day one, eight guys on day two, eight guys on day three. You know, got up to nine guys on day five and then, you know, 10 days on or 10 guys on day six where we played on day seven. So, you know, who's to say that that long layoff didn't help us, right? Heading into, you know, the conference tournament, our guys might have been fresher, right? And as a coach, you feel like you're, you know, not ready or, you know, but then it goes into trusting your team and trusting your players and, and uh, you know, trying to figure it out in a short amount of time and, you know, we won two of our three games and then, you know, steamrolled through the MAC tournament heading into the NCAA tournament. So I think there's a lot to be, you know, said for that and kind of go back and reflect on, you know, what you went through. Well, and I'm curious, I mean, from your perspective as well, it probably taught you how to relax into some of these things that you don't control and that you can still figure it out, right? And uh, that's got to be a huge lesson for you and other coaches. Yeah, and, and I always go back to, like, I'm super positive. Right. I were all we worry about is effort level, really not what, what happens, but how hard you're playing, playing through mistakes, next play mentality, 
And it's almost like there was no pressure, right? It was like, it was kind of fun to, you know, you're down, you're starting point guard, you're starting center. There's some guys that came in that hadn't played all year and stepped up and, and that showed me, you know, things. And, and I think, you know, when you're in that situation and, and, you know, you're really expected to lose, you kind of go in there with a different attitude of, you know, really just being positive, playing hard and, and giving guys, guys confidence. As a, as a self-described positive coach, what are, what, what is the process for you when you need to challenge players in some context to do something differently? Is it conversational? Is it transactional, transformational? How do you approach it? Yeah, it depends on who it is, right? And what, what you want to get through. Um, you know, sometimes you have to know that if you call a guy out in front of the whole team, it's going to be an adverse, you know, deal. Where it's going to be worse than what it was going in. Uh, but, you know, there's sometimes that you have to get on the whole team and, you know, that, that might be just more of a mentality thing or a focus deal or an effort, you know, deal. Um, I think individually it might be if someone's making continuous mistakes or not seeing what they should see or, or if it's a leader, you know, having to talk more, uh, you know, play harder. So I think it's all individually based. And then sometimes, you know, as a team, and I remember Jason Preston, uh, you know, everyone had those electronic whistles, right? So Jason Preston passed up whatever shot because, you know, he's a pass first guy and always wants to, you know, pass, but we're, we're trying to get him to shoot more. And he passed up a shot for maybe the third time. And I just took my whistle and slammed it down, shattered into pieces. And, you know, I was mad at myself after the fact, but it's like for him to, you know, pass up a shot, it was hurting our team. Like we want you to shoot. And sometimes he felt selfish, but it's like, Hey, look, you're the best player on our team. Right, they're not going to care if you shoot twenty times a game, because it's an open shot. You're shooting forty percent from three, like it'd be different. So, I think it's all you know based on scenarios and reads, and, and really what you want to, as a head coach, want to emphasize and get through, you know, to your team. Well, it's it's been part of the generosity of coaches like yourself who have done this podcast to be able to do some self reflection and share. And you mentioned this already: things that you would do different. And I know you shared one of them with me when you went from being first year head coach, but I'm curious if you can share some other things with us in terms of, well, that thing, and then some other things with us, but talk to me about some of the things you reflected on and have figured it out or figured out. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest things, you know, the amount of decisions you make as a head coach are astronomical. And, you know, it's to the point where you come home and, you know, you ask your wife or kids, what do you want for dinner? And you're like, I don't care. I don't want to make that decision. but you know, the, the biggest thing was not being prepared for, you know, close games. You know, I was not ready for that. And maybe after the third close game, I'm talking about one, two possessions, right, where, you know, it's coming down the stretch and, you know, you either have a timeout, don't have a timeout. And, you know, after that point, you know, I went back and just looked at all the tape and said, okay, we're running these two plays, you know, these two underneath out-of-bounds plays, these two, these two side out-of-bounds plays. You know, if we have a timeout, here's a package we can run. If we don't have a timeout, we're going to run one of the two plays that we, you know, are going to work on. Um, you know, so different scenarios like that. I remember my first timeout, you know, Chris, it was like, boom, timeout, 32nd. Before I think I said one word or the first horn went. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not ready for this. And, you know, it's things you, you got to practice, right? Drawing up plays on the board, you know, maybe getting a stopwatch. Because you have to know what you're going to say, what you're going to do before you even call the timeout. And, um, you know, so I think I think that was really different, you know, from that standpoint of being a head coach and, you know, being the guy running everything. And, and you know, when I was at Ohio State, I was our defensive coordinator. So I wasn't really engrossed in the offense as much. I saw a lot of other offenses, but it's not like you're thinking about plays and drawing plays up. And, and I think that's really where, you know, your assistants come into play. I, I have some great assistants. You know, and we do it like we did Ohio State. I have an offensive guy, defensive guy. And, you know, those, those coaches are always thinking like, hey, run, you know, two slash, right? And then you, you might call out two slash or there might be something you want to run. But, uh, you know, your staff's invaluable in those situations because everything happens so quickly. Hey, coach, have you checked out ImmersionVideos.com? ImmersionVideos.com has exclusive products from Doug Novak, Aaron Fern, Dave Smart, and now successful high school coach, Mark Cassio. The all-access high school basketball practice with Mark Cassio is now available. Embrace the modern basketball movement by applying a decisive, fast, and free philosophy. 
Experience Coach Casio's game-based practices, up-tempo attack, innovative offensive and defensive concepts, and impactful skill development. Access one of the best high school basketball educators in the world. Open the doors and get full access to three practices and a drill video library. Go to markcasiobasketball.com to learn more. Hey coach, as I mentioned, if you download and start using Locker Room app, you can talk to me, other fans, athletes, and insiders in real time. It is a great place to listen and to share your own experiences on the app. I have enjoyed the ongoing conversations, watching games together, reacting to the biggest news, rumors, and games for sure. But mostly, I've enjoyed talking with coaches like yourself in real time. Join in on conversations with me and others. I'll be hosting rooms every week on Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Come through and talk with me live. I remember this decision-making fatigue. It's, it's such a real thing. And I remember finally later in my coaching career having a conversation with my wife about it and how much that improved our relationship, to be honest, because now she kind of understood that I wasn't indifferent. I just literally was okay if she just led and made the decisions that weren't to do with my basketball program. <laughs> yeah, and, and I saw a great thing because you know you have so many things: compliance, housing, recruiting, you know, locker room, you know, travel, everything that goes into it. And you know, somebody told me one time, like if it doesn't impact winning, like don't don't make the decision, right? And you know, if it's like you want to put the patch on the left side or the right side, like let someone else figure that out. Who cares? Because you have so many other important decisions yeah. to make. Where you know it's like your your brain is always processing. So, you know, I, I try to do that. And you know, one of the other worst things uh, I was not very good at was delegating. Mm -hmm. And I think as an assistant coach, right, you're in charge of certain things and you do certain things, and you might not have the GAs or the managers that that are accessible and want to help. So when I became a head coach, it was hard for me to delegate, you know, to give guys responsibility to to do certain things. And, you know, now I feel comfortable, right? I've had a couple of guys uh, with me on my staff for four years, um, you know, and, and you feel good about telling them what to do and, that they, and trusting them to do it. But delegating was hard for me as well. So uh, back, to, uh, back to the close games scenario then, and then obviously improving this, can you give us, like, what are some things that you did? You said, talked about uh, timing your plays or timing your timeouts in terms of diagramming them. But are there other things that you did within practice or within film that helped you improve that? Well, I'll never forget this, and I'm still kicking myself. And I said I would never do it again, but I did it. Um, so we played Lowell of Maryland. We're down one with seven seconds to go. They're going full court. And their best player, you know, we end up turning them, you know, twice. But he ended up getting to the rim, throws the ball up on the rim, rolls around, bounces, bounces, drops in, game over. We lose by one. So I was always like, I'm not going to let the best player beat me, right? I'm going to double team him. Well, go back to the Illinois game, seven seconds to go. I end up calling a timeout to set our defense up. And Ayo Desumnu comes off, half-court ball screen, gets to the rim, makes a layup with like 1.2 seconds to go. And to this day, I'm absolutely kicking myself that I was in that situation, you know, four years prior. And I told myself I, I would never let the best player beat me, and we did it. Uh, so, you know, you, you work on, you know, things offensively and defensively, right? You know, do you foul up three? What time do you foul up three? And for me, it's not, uh, not going to be an exact thing. Like, we're going to do this every single time. I think it'll be a game feel, you know, a time feel, uh, you know, what type of team we have, who's on the court. Um, but – you know, it's it's completely different. You got to work on all avenues, offense, defense, underneath, out of bounds. Um, you know, we 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 had a, play, a game against Maine. We were down one. They had the ball with 1.2 seconds to go, going full court, and we had no timeouts left. Well, they ended up throwing a deep home run pass, went out of bounds. No one touched it. So we had the ball down one, underneath our own basket. You know, 1.2 seconds, and you know, we ran three up. Uh, one of the specialty plays that we practiced. And we ran it, double back screen, lob, get the ball right at the rim, foul, make two free throws, and we won the game. So I think just, you know, every scenario you can think of uh, to try to make your team as prepared as possible and really give them confidence to go through it so when they're in that situation, it's kind of, you know, second nature to them. Well, and the hard part is to evaluate it 
uh, independent of the outcome, isn't it? Because sometimes you could feel still, even after the fact that you did the right thing and it might not lead to the right outcome. And uh, the only people that are right are us basketball coaches on Twitter that can obviously question everything after the fact, right? (laughs) Yeah, you know, one one thing I really like is watching the end of uh, close NBA games, right? Where they can advance the ball and there's always going to be some type of, you know, quick hitter off a side out of bounds. And, you know, I love watching Popovich, right? I mean, he's got a million plays. And, you know, I know K-to-base Diop, who are recruited, uh, that's on that team. And, you know, sometimes I'll afterwards, I'll be like, hey, is that what you're looking for? He's like, no, so-and-so, you know, messed it up. Or, hey, Pop didn't run that one. You know, he let the assistant draw it up. And, but they can execute it, get a great look and miss it. But, you know, it was like, hey, that's what you wanted. You know, you got the shot you wanted in that situation. Um, so I really enjoy watching those, you know, close, you know, games because there's so many side out of bounds, you know, situations. I'm curious, is there much of an appetite from the college men's game and in, in advancing the ball in the last two minutes? Yeah, I, I think it'd be interesting, right? It would make games a lot more interesting. And, I do too, yeah. You know, it's like you look at, you know, the women's game, they do it, you know, and the men's game, you know, is the only team that has half still in the, in the world. Uh, so I think there's some things that, would definitely, you know, make the game more exciting and, and, you know, put some, I guess, X and O, you know, mentality into it as opposed to just, you know, some luck with a half-court shot or whatever it may be. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what happens there. I know another thing is that you're huge on competing in practice. Can you can you frame that for us, our understanding of how you guys compete in practice? Yeah, so the, some of the best players have been around, D'Angelo Russell, Evan Turner, Jared Solinger, those guys. You know, when you, when you do a drill, right, and sometimes they'd be like, why are we doing this drill? Or they'd kind of just go through the drill to do the drill. But if you did that same drill and put a point system to it, right, it's game on. It's like the competitive nature kicks in, you know, winner, loser, you know, the most competitive guys hate to lose. So when you, when you put that aspect into it, the drill becomes that much better. You get more out of it that way. Um, you know, we'll do – you know, in the summertime, we'll do a lot of competition stuff. We'll do, you know, normally we would end with scrimmaging, you know, most every workout. And it could be, you know, a one-game series, a three-game series, a best of five, best of seven. You know, it could be first one to score wins, uh, best of seven. It could be first one to three wins where, you know, you have to guard the three-point line. And, you know, those games happen quick. But it really talks or teaches them the, the intensity, right, competitiveness and the value of every single possession where it's like, you know, as a coach, you might lose by one at the buzzer, but you might've had three straight turnovers in the first 10 minutes of the game where you didn't get a shot off. You know, that's just as important as that last you know shot that the other team hit. So, um, you know, that was one thing that, you know, Thad was big on competing. Uh, you know, I, I go to some football practices at uh, Ohio State football, Urban Meyer, that's all he was about, you know, compete, compete, compete. And he didn't care if you're a fifth year senior or freshman, you know, the better guy was going to play. And, you know, his, his mindset was if somebody comes in, right, you want them to respect everybody in your program, but compete in classroom, weight room, one-on-one, shooting drills, 5v5, whatever it may be. And if you come in and compete, you might elevate everybody, right, or you're going to bypass people. And, you know, we, we want our guys competing in everything, everything they do. So awesome and awesome to hear the Urban Meyer example. So what are what are some things that within your program you guys do in terms of consequences or noticing winning or losing in terms of uh, helping your players understand that they won or lost? Yeah, in the summer when we do structure, we we chart every win and loss per player. And it's amazing at the end of the summer, you know, who ends up winning and who who's the, who the losing people are. And, you know, we, we stat everything. We do, you know, with, you know, Sean Miller did it at Arizona. We, it was the gold standard, right, where everything's got a, you know, plus and minus to it. Turnover, rebound, assist, you know, missed free throw, missed three, made three, whatever it may be. And, you know, we'll do that uh, daily. We'll do it weekly, and then we'll do a, a cumulative deal. And it's amazing, you know, the better players tend to end up winning and have a higher Bobcat standard point total. But it really gives them a, a visual to see, right, man, I've lost that many games. So in their mind, you know, coming in the next day and competing even harder or like, man, I don't want to be on a losing team. Sometimes I'll take the five, you know, top five and the, and the bottom five and play them against each other. 
sometimes I'll take the top guy in the bottom four and put them together, you know, where Jason Preston's got four guys who've lost and, and say, hey, look, you got to carry these guys today. So we'll mix it up like that just to, you know, try to get as competitive as we can. And, and uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you might have the same two teams, best of seven series to seven points. There's some smack talking going on. It's a 4-3 series. And they'll be like, hey, put the same teams tomorrow as they were today. You know, we want another crack at these guys. And, uh, you know, that's the most competitive guys. They, they hate losing. So you may never end the drill. Like, come on, run it back. New seven-game series. You know, that, that's what you want, guys with that mentality. And, and also, like, to connect it back to your next play mentality again, it, it's almost impossible to get game transfer of coping strategies or this next play mentality, growth mindset, whatever you want to call it unless you are doing it every day in practice. And this competing allows you to emphasize that and teach that and coach that every day in practice, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it goes back to, uh, I'm sure I heard it on your podcast about playing five more 5v5 drills, right? You, you, you know, the 3v3, the 4v4, you know. So when I heard that podcast, you know, I started doing more 5v5 stuff, more game, you know, simulated, you know, situations. And, um you know, I think it just helps the overall, you know, program individually, you know, teaches them winning, losing does matter. You know, there's consequences to losing, whether it might be, you know, you put everyone in line and run them free throw line and back, you know, whatever it may be, something simple, one push up, you know, but but there's a consequence to losing. And I think if you go to the like rebounding drills and, you know, if you whatever you want to emphasize, right, you can change the point system to emphasize offensively or defensively, whatever you want to get through in that drill. And uh, I think the guys really just, you know, focus that much more when there's there's points on the board. But they also enjoy it more, don't they? Yeah, it becomes spirited, right? And that's what you want. And, you know, it's it's almost like, you know, we do the kill drill, right? Where you got to get three stops in a row before you can, you know, get out. And when you get to two stops and someone gives up a layup and then two stops and someone gives up a wide open jump shot because they didn't rotate, now guys start talking more. Right. They, they get on each other more, hold each other more accountable. And I think today's kid, like nobody, nobody wants to piss anyone off. Right. The peer accountability is not he, there like it, it, it should be or what it was. Um, and it's like, hey, look, you can't take it personal when he tells you you have to block him out because you gave up a game winning, you know, uh, offensive rebound putback. All he's trying to do is win. And, and and so I think when you go into those scenarios with the points and there's there's more on the line, guys start talking more and communicating more. Another thing that you shared with me is your list of non-negotiables. And, and what I love about this conversation and, and talking about it is the coaches are, again, understanding that you can't have 100 non-negotiables. You can't have all this whole list of non-negotiables. You need to really, really narrow it down to what is most important in terms of the non-negotiables. So can you share those with us? Yeah, so I'll start with, you know, the the what we look for in a, a recruit. You know, number one is high character guys. We want guys to do the right thing on and off the floor. The second thing is I want guys who love the game of basketball that want to be pros. And, and you know, you know they're going to be in the gym extra, watching extra tape, taking care of their bodies, getting the sleep that they need. And then the third thing is, you know, young men serious about earning their degree. And, you know, I was I was a biology major. You know, I took organic chemistry, neuroanatomy, cell chem, physiologies, anatomies. If I knew I was going to coach, I probably wouldn't have been a biology major, but I wanted to be a physical therapist. So academics has always been important to me. You know, my mom was a school teacher. My dad was a pharmacist. So I was kind of raised that way. So I, I know that most of our guys aren't going to play pro. And it's important that they have something to fall back on. So our three non-negotiables, number one is going to class. You know, it's non-negotiable. You know, the expectation through the recruiting process, the transparency, and then making them understand like, hey, you're expected to go to class. It's non-negotiable. The second thing is their attitude. And the third thing is their actions. And that covers a broad range, right? But it's like, don't blame, don't complain, don't deflect, you know, take ownership if you make a mistake, be positive. You know, we talk all the time about, hey, look, you're going to have a bad moment. You can't let that bad moment make a bad day. And that's about the response and, and, and fighting through adversity. And then really your actions, right? You control all three, going to class, attitude, actions. And uh, so we really talk about that. And, and you know, probably one of the most proud things I've, as a head coach, when I got the job, 
there were three guys that were like 99.9% .9 of the academic report, missed class, late class, missed tutor, late tutor, disrespect tutor. And, you know, one of them was one of the best players returning. And they were all quick conversations. And those three guys weren't in our program, you know, year one. So, you know, when, when you do something like that and you, you set the expectation and the other guys say, see it, right, that there's a, a consequence, then it kind of perks everyone up. So we went through 10 weeks of in-class uh, before the pandemic hit and everything went virtual. And in that 10-week span, we didn't have one guy miss a class or miss a tutor. And as a coach, you're kind of waiting on it to happen so you can kind of, you know, set the tone and give a consequence, uh, a disparate action to kind of make everyone understand like this is important. But when that's one of your foundations and something you preach and, and part of your culture, like it becomes habit and normal. And, you know, it goes back to competing in the classroom, you know, er everything you do. So, you know, we, we take pride in that. I'm curious uh, a few things, but the first one is like, have you ever connected it for your players that look, if you're not a pain in my butt, I'm a better coach for you. And that it helps me become a better coach for you when you take care of the things that you should take care of. Yeah. I think it goes back to, you know, high character guys. Um, you know, there, there was a situation here recently where we could have got a really good transfer and it wasn't a great fit culturally, right. Would have been our best player, probably one of our top two players, but it wasn't worth it to, to bring that in. And, I think as a coach, right, well, I call guys like we don't want to coach wheelbarrows, guys you got to push all the time. Mm -hmm. And when you have to coach the attitude and the effort, it's taken away from everything else, you know, that, that you have, have to put your attention and energy to. And, you know, guys, kids are going to make mistakes, right? That's 18 to 22 years old. That's part of college, uh, you know, part of being a, a teacher and an educator and mentor and a coach. And, and those are the teachable moments and, and making them understand what's right, what's wrong. But I think when you don't have to deal with all the external stuff, you know, it makes everything so much easier. It makes coming to practice fun, right? When you're around good kids and they're, they're working hard and, and, you know, winning's hard, right? And making 13 guys happy is really hard because you can only play five at a time. Most coaches play maybe seven, eight guys. And if you don't have good kids, that can become a problem. And winning helps, right? And throughout the course of the year, you know, I'd watch, you know, these TV tapes and everyone was talking about our bench, the energy level, the enthusiasm. And when you have a winning program like that, it's, it's a lot easier. But what do you do when you're losing? Right. Do you have that same energy and that same mojo? Um, you know, are you complaining because you're not playing? So I think it, it goes back to, you know, trying to recruit high character kids, you know, that, that love the game and, you know, serious about their degree. I love that wheelbarrow analogy. That's great. Uh, and the other question I've really enjoyed asking coaches is, uh, especially when we talk about this recruiting piece a little bit, because I believe it helps direct high school coaches in terms of how they phrase things to players or development coaches. And it's this concept of you want to recruit guys who love the game. How do you assess that as a coach when you go and recruit a player? Yeah, I think the first thing is you ask them what their ultimate goal is, right? And most of them are going to say play pro, whether it's NBA or overseas. So it's like, here's your goal right here, right? You're starting right here. It's not a linear deal. It's not a straight line. There's going to be prosperity happening and adversity happen. How do you handle the adversity? How do you handle prosperity? And that goes back to the E plus R equals O, your response to positivity. And it's like, okay, now what are your, what's your attitude? What are your actions? Here are your goals, right? If you're working out every other day or you're staying up late or going out to the bars or you know, not watching film, your actions are right here. Your goals are right here. They don't match. So you either got to change your goals or change your actions, right? So a lot of kids don't know, right? And we, we always talk about, hey, be a pro's pro on the court, be a pro's pro off the court. And you have to give them examples. And we try to do a lot of uh, articles, right? The NBA articles, the, the, you know, positives of sleep, right? Boston Celtics did their sleep study. And, you know, sometimes they stay the night so they can get a better sleep instead of flying out at two in the morning and, you know, getting to a hotel at four in the morning. So we, we try to give them articles on hydration, right? How to take care of your body, the importance of, and really just educating our guys uh, so we can sit there and say, hey, look, here's what the Celtics do. Here's what the Nuggets do. And we even showed them an article on coffee, right? When Myers Leonard was at Portland, 45 minutes for every game, they get their French drip, you know, press coffee and drink it and the benefits of the stimulant, and da, 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 you know, 
So we, we really try to educate them on how to be a pro, right? What the importance of sleep, hydration, recovery, you know, taking care of your body, uh, then what you put in nutritionally. So, you know, it's, it's an education. And I think the more you educate, the more they know, and, and, you know, they're going to deviate at some point, but then you kind of go back to say, Hey, what, what were your goals? You want to be a pro, right? You want to be a, a all league player. Well, your actions right now, you know, you're showing up right before practice. You're not coming early. You're not getting prepared. Uh, you know, all the things that go into winning. And it's not just, you know, three to six every day in practice. It's what you do at night, sleeping, what you put in your body for breakfast. You know, do you sleep in until one? So, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. And the reality is, I'm curious, at your, at your level and many levels that uh, coaches coach in college, some players during their career with you will realize that they're probably not going to play pro. And how do you change that conversation for them in terms of, hey, be the best basketball player you can be, but we're still going to prepare you for your future after the fact? Yeah, which, which is fine, right? Not everyone wants to be a pro, which is, which is fine. But now it goes back to, you know, what's your role, right? You have to be a star at your role. Um, you still have to be a great teammate. You know, you might play eight minutes a game one night, four minutes the next, 15 minutes the next. And I think mentally for kids, it's tough because I, I call them the externals, right? And this, this, is, this is more prevalent probably at the high major level where everyone thinks they're going to be in the NBA, where uncle, aunt, AAU coach, high school coach, brother, whoever, you know, is telling the kid, you're not getting enough shots. Chris isn't passing you the ball. You know, Jeff isn't better than you, shouldn't be playing over. So now they got all these negative things going in their head. Well, as a coach, you're trying to get 13 guys on the same page to win a goal, uh, to win a championship and, and have one common goal. And I remember when, when we played uh, Wisconsin in 2012, we got beat by like 20-some points, got smacked. And we come back, and, and Thad has a meeting with him, and he's kind of like, hey, look, I can't be the eighth person you're listening to. I know I'm not going to be one or two, but I can't be number eight, right? And if that happens, right, where I, I'm not the eighth person, we're going to get a chance to be pretty good because I think there's so many external factors and, you know, so many distractions now for these young people where the ability to focus, right, and understand why we're doing and, and getting guys to understand when the team wins, the individual wins, right? The further you go in the tournament, the more exposure you're going to get, the higher, you know, you can raise your draft status. You know, you win the league, you're going to have a player of the year. You're going to have a couple first-team guys. And, and but it, it's such a, uh, you know, tough situation to guide where you can't control what uncle, aunt, brother, cousin, AU, high school coach says. And, and you gotta have that relationship and try to, you know, make them understand, be a great teammate. Here's what we want to do, how to do it. And, uh, you know, coaching is different now, you know, last five, 10 years than it is, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Coach, just so much great phrasing. I can't thank you enough for sharing it. And uh, I have to say, I noticed your uh, sweatshirt there. So can you explain that? Yeah, so it's, it's something, uh, a design that I came up with. And it, it you know, I think, you know, coaching now, especially in, in the world that we live in with all the social injustice happening, you know, one of my former players, D'Angelo Russell, was back at a protest and a rally in Louisville. And he had a T-shirt on. It was a 502 for the area code of Louisville. And the zero was a fist. And I kind of got the idea to create a logo for my team. And all I wanted to do was make 25 T-shirts. And so I came up with this design here. And, you know, within 10 minutes, you know, Taylor Rhodes came up with a graphic. And I said, that's perfect. That's awesome. So I go to a, a guy that's going to make me 25 T-shirts. And he said, hey, you need to sell this T-shirt. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to sell it. I want it 25 for my team. And he's like, no, this is fire. You got to sell this. And he goes, look, I'll, I'll, I'll put the T-shirt up and I'll put the uh, labor and printing up. Whatever's after that, the proceeds you can you know, keep. And I said, well, I don't want to make one penny off of it. So it took me about a month to figure out where I wanted to donate the proceeds. And I came up with an idea to uh, the Ohio University Ebony Bobcat Network Scholarship Fund for Minorities uh, on campus. And so the proceeds you know, for the T-shirts, the hats, and the sweatshirts that have been sold are going towards a scholarship. And you know, I think about three weeks ago, we, we have a $19,500 check, you know, going towards this uh, scholarship for the Ebony Bobcat Network. And uh, it turned out awesome. And, uh, you know, 
I would, I would have been happy to make a hundred dollars off of it. I had no idea where it would end up, but, uh, you know, it's going to a great cause and, and, uh, you know, I'm a little biased, but I think it's a pretty cool design. It's very cool design. And for coaches that can't see if they're listening to this podcast, um, I'll share it on Twitter so you can see it, but, uh, it's two fists, a black and a white fist, and then high in the middle and, uh, it looks tremendous coach. Yeah. The, the, there's a website for it. It's called Ohio impact. com. O H I O I M P A C T.com. And, and, uh, you know, it's for a great cause and, you know, I, I enjoy wearing it out in public and, you know, people come up to me saying, man, I love your t-shirt or sweatshirt. Where'd you get it? And, you know, you tell them the whole story and they're like, oh man, I'm gonna buy one. And, um, but, uh, obviously I appreciate your time and, and all that you do, not, not only for, you know, coaches, but the game, you know, I think, uh, you know, you're, you're building on your brand, which is awesome. And, you know, I'm a big fan. Oh, thank you so much, coach. And thanks for sharing the game with us. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the basketball podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.